may be strong in the faith and lead others to Christ as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So I mentioned uh, tower building as we turn to Genesis chapter 4. Let's look at that. After the exile, the Bible records several generations of descendants from Cain, and they did amazing things. Um, but like all things, it comes down to the heart behind the deed. If you think about uh, a tower today, um, the tallest uh, freestanding structure in the world is the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. It's a building that is over 830 meters tall. It's, it's colossal. It's, uh, you know, we look at a picture and we can't imagine the scale of such a construction. But we've been building tall buildings for the last century, actually. Before that, the tallest structure in the world for almost the entirety of human history, thousands of years, was the Great Pyramid in Egypt. That was the tallest structure for thousands of years. And then the Eiffel Tower was built in the 1800s. That was taller than the uh, Great Pyramid. And since then, we've just been going up and down and building bigger and greater things. But that's uh, quite a, a testament to human ingenuity, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with human ingenuity. There's nothing wrong with uh, advancements in technology. But we do have to wonder how much of these achievements, how much of the, the people that wonder at it and the people that made it show reverence to our creator? Here's another example. Harvard University, one of the oldest universities in the world, had um, their, their emblem was two books facing up and then on the center, third book facing down. And the significance of that was these two books uh, that faced up represented the Old and the New Testament, the Word of God. And the book that was facing down represented the secret knowledge of God, that um, uh, affirmation that we will not know everything that God knows. Uh, there is things in this world that are unfathomable, and we need to rely on God to reveal that truth to us. That's what that emblem meant. That was what the university was founded on. A few hundred years ago, they changed the emblem. Now all three books are facing up. And they declare there is nothing that we cannot know. Today, in Genesis 4, we're going to see how this worldly way of thinking affected 
us as the human race, even from the beginning. So last week, we looked at Cain and Abel, how he killed his brother, and the consequences of that um, action. Today, we are going to look at the worldly things that start uh, coming about when we cut God out of the picture. We can relate it to ourselves in this modern day and age. So let's read it and then look at it together. So this is from verse 18 of Genesis 4. Sorry, verse 17 of Genesis 4. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived, gave birth to Enoch. He built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and to Irad was born, uh, was the father of uh, Mehayul. Mehayul was the father of Methushel, and Methushel was the father of Lamech. And Lamech took two wives named Ada and Zillah, and Ada gave birth to Jabul. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubai, and he was the father of all those who played harp and flute. Zillah gave birth to Tubal-Cain, a, a forger of every tool of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Adan Zillah, hear my voice. Your, you wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man who hurt me. If Cain will be avenged sevenfold, then truly Lamech will seventy-sevenfold. Dear Lord, we pray that you may illuminate the truth here to us, that we may grow from it and know it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so there's a lot to take in. There's, it, it, it seems like just a list of names if you look at it uh, um, at face value. But let's, uh, let's consider more closely. Cain had a son named Enoch. It's not the same Enoch of Seth's line. It's a different Enoch. And the word, his name, means um, initiation or training. It's interesting that um, Cain then built a city. And this is the first recorded instance where such a thing happens. This is how the Bible defines what a city is. It's a compound or a stronghold or a place of dwelling with a wall around it or a barricade. That's what a city is. So don't imagine Johannesburg when you think of building a city. <clears throat> the, the emphasis is that he built a wall to protect himself. From what? Well, we read uh, last week that he was fearful for his life. He begged God this punishment is too harsh. People will find out that I killed my brother and they will kill me. 
And God said, no, they will not. Vengeance is mine. Whoever kills Abel in, uh, Cain in revenge will be punished sevenfold. That's, that's how the story ended last week. That uh, vengeance belongs to God. But yet, his worldly fears remain. So the first point, the worldly fears of Cain, no longer trusting in God, living in dependence on him uh, and um, his guidance, but relying rather on himself for security and safety and, um, and protection. I'm not saying that we shouldn't uh, keep ourselves safe. That's not what's happening here. He was still fearful of those that would come after him, even after the Lord reassured him that that would not be the case. Ask yourself this morning, does fear shape your actions? Not that it's wrong to be afraid, it's a, it's a human emotion, but to live in fear is an entirely different thing than to be fearful sometimes. Do we live in fear? As believers, we cannot... Um, rightly place our faith in God for our lives and our livelihoods and live in fear at the same time. Many of us know exactly what that looks like. Perhaps that was us. Perhaps we see it in family and friends and neighbors and, um, and it comes about in a sense of hopelessness what tomorrow holds. The next point, <clears throat> so Cain um, will get to um, Lamech's sons, but uh, a few generations go by and it mentions a man named Lamech. And Lamech, if Cain was subject to worldly fears, then Lamech certainly was guilty of worldly desires worldly desires. It tells us that he took two wives. I know many of the patriarchs like David and Solomon had more than one wife, but the Bible tells us that this was uh, permitted because of the hardness of our hearts. It was never God's original intended created design. It's still present in many cultures today. But like so many things after the fall, twisted the original design. He created a married couple to become one flesh, even though God um, did not permit it. Lamech took two wives, and we have to wonder why. My first wife is not enough for me. She's not adequate for me. What God had given me... Uh, 
uh, doesn't um, fulfill my desires, and so I'm going to take another wife. Desire. But Jesus set the record straight, right? In Matthew 19, talking about this very thing and referencing Adam and Eve, the example of what marriage should look like. But not all earthly desires are so on the nose as I desire um, lustful, fleshly things in someone beautiful. We desire all kinds of things. It can be anything. It can be everything. The problem is when we begin to shape our aspirations and our efforts in obtaining that thing. In both cases, we are not living for God. Either we live in fear or we live for the next pleasure. It describes generations of people that lived apart from God. What about the next one? Lamech had several children. And it talks about their worldly aspirations or their worldly uh, achievements. We can put a lot of faith in our achievements, can't we? So the Bible names his children. All of them became masters in the arts and engineering. They achieved great advances in technology, like um, the people that dwelt in tents and herded cattle. There was many technological necessities needed to achieve something like that. Leather work, weaving, um, uh, fabric, producing fabric, um, uh, handling livestock. There was, there was a lot of knowledge um, needed to live a lifestyle like that. It wasn't um, primitive at all. Talks about a, another son that um, cr invented some sort of a stringed instrument. It says you're a harp. Uh, and a flute, a wind instrument. <clears throat> that alone takes uh, a lot of technological um, uh, know-how. For example, to craft a, fi uh, a finely craft wood. Today, a handcrafted instrument can cost hundreds of thousands of rands. To be able to craft, not crudely hammering two pieces of wood together, but finely crafting something. And understand music theory, rhythm, and tempo, and, and all these things to be able to create a musical instrument. Then the third uh, son, Tubal Cain, his name, uh, it's actually Forger, it's, it's written in his name, um, that he refined... Uh, metal. So uh, copper was a very easily uh, obtainable metal. It was, it was easily forged. Uh, it bended well. You can 
make it without processing it. But it says that he was a forger of iron. To, to smelt iron is an incredibly uh, technical process. So they were masters of ingenuity and technology. But have you noticed that it doesn't mention God anywhere? It's not necessarily to say that Seth's line wasn't technologically advanced. It took um, incredible engineering knowledge for Noah to build the ark, so it's not that it wasn't there. But this passage is making a point that they achieved these things in their own power, and they relied on them. And his sister, Nama, her name means beauty and loveliness, which again in and of itself is not wrong, but it not only spoke of their advancements in the arts and sciences, but also their elegance of life. They weren't just surviving. They were, today we would spend thousands of rands on cream and surgery and de-aging, um, uh, you know, miracle potions, um, that there was, there was that even back then. So even though all these things were done, God was not glorified in these achievements. There is a sense of temporal temporalness. Uh, I'm only living for today, and I'm only living for this moment. And lastly, Lamech's worldly proclamation, an almost uh, culmination of living a life apart from God. and We see this today. So if we look back at the passage, uh, we see that Lamech makes this announcement to his wives in a poem, a poetic form. And he says, uh, listen to my voice. I have slain a man for wounding me. And I have killed a young man, and it could also be translated as a boy, uh, a child even, for hurting me. <clears throat> so what's happening? Well, my understanding is that there was an incident, there seems to have been an incident where he got into a fight with a young man, and because this young man had hurt him, had landed a blow against him, the word there, bruise and wound, indicates a, a bluntness. You know, you, you didn't cause critical harm. So because this man had hurt him, he, killed <laughs> and that word slew has the idea of sharpness he must have used a weapon 
that his son probably made for him. I don't know. Tuval Cain. And this family was then fearful for their lives. You killed someone. Remember what happened the last time somebody killed someone. They're going to come after us. And he sits down to reassure his wives and himself. No, 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 no. That's not the case. You see, Cain murdered somebody out of cold blood. I was just defending myself. But was he? Was he defending his life? Or did he take revenge on someone because they had hurt him? There's a difference. And then in an almost ironic uh, turn of events, he proclaims, Cain did that horrible thing and my thing wasn't even as bad as his. So if God um, protected him sevenfold, then surely uh, anyone who touches me will be judged 77-fold. So there's nothing to worry about. What temporal, narrow-minded thinking to think that his act wasn't considered revenge. And that secondly, to twist the words of God and reassure his own guilty conscience. That's what I get from this. Do you, do we all in our sinful state or if we look out into the world and we, and we see people uh, living for themselves and living according to their own definition of right and wrong, not sleep with one eye open, not look over their shoulder, never at rest, never at peace, perhaps even haunted by their guilty conscience. What if somebody finds out? This is, this is life apart from God. That's what it looks like. <clears throat> so, like every week, we take Genesis and we pull it through to our New Testament and we see what does this passage have to uh, say for the church and for the Christian today. Well, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 to 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 to 3 says, If you then were raised with Christ, desire those things which are above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above and not on things of the earth. Notice those words, desire and affection. Affection is your emotional uh, focus. For you are dead and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then you also shall appear with him in glory. Here's another one. Philippians chapter 3, verse 18 to 20, and it says something very similar. Philippians chapter 3, verse 18 to 20. For many are walking in such a way that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. I have told you of them often and tell you again. Their destination is destruction. Their God is their appetite. Their glory is in their shame. And their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, from where we also await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> I want to encourage you and exhort you to live for the eternal things, to speak the gospel, to, uh, to love one another, to love God, to uh, remain uh, faithful. These things cannot be measured with earthly value. And we can, we can do that and still um, achieve great things in this world, in the power of God. It doesn't nullify uh, any of that. But let's do everything for the glory of God. There's an old poem I want us to remember. It's called Ozymandias, written by Percy Shelley. So it's a very long poem, but it talks about this uh, explorer coming across the ruins of a statue, and there's just desert and sand around. And um, on the description, half of the statue is broken off, and an uh, inscription on this ruined statue says, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works you mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains. The, the poem uh, now uh, talks about this inscription that says, look on my works, you mighty and despair. And the explorer lifts his head up and he says, nothing, nothing remains around the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretch far away. This philosophy today is called humanism. Atheism is, could be defined broadly as the rejection of God. Humanism is worse in a sense because I define it as the celebration of the rejection of when we stand up and we say, everything in this universe we can know through uh, sheer um, labor and everything can be achieved 
through the sweat of our brow, and we don't need a God, we end up in dangerous territory. And we end up living for things that have no eternal value, like dear old Ozymandias. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we do thank you for your truth and your wisdom in our lives, a reminder that we should set our focus on things of eternal value, namely your glory, Lord, and your redeeming work in Jesus Christ. We thank you for that. May we proclaim it wherever we go. In Jesus' name, amen.